Hey, this is Doug Jones from Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer, Hellboy 1 and 2, Hocus Pocus, Pan's Labyrinth, and currently on Falling Skies. But today, you are listening to Genretainment. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Genretainment at SciFiPulseRadio.com. We're your host, Marks. And Julie. John Retainment is where we talk about what's happening in the world of film, TV, and web series. We give you interviews with writers, directors, producers, and actors in both independent and not-so-independent creations. Now, for this 103rd episode, we are chatting with writer-director Darren Murphy, creator of the time travel series Timekeeper, and actor Matt Lunsford, who stars as Mitch Manners on Timekeeper. We learn more about this time travel web series, the Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign for Season 3, and get some tips about crowdfunding and acting. Oh, and we also learn about Darren's secret first film. Mm. If Matt is really British. I wonder. What makes a good time-traveling pet? <laughs> oh, I bet a rock. Pet rock. They age well. Yeah, you don't have to feed them much. Now, before we get started with the fun interviews, we should point out that the music you just heard at the beginning of the show was a snippet for the theme song for our web series, Reality on Demand. It was a song composed and performed by our friend T. Sean Hardy. Now, you can find our web series at realityondemandseries.com. Now, let's get started with our interview with Darren and Matt. His name is Mitch Manners, and he's traveling through time. <laughs> You don't have a choice. We'll see about that. You don't do it, and things will get worse. Trust me, I don't. Welcome to the show, Darren and Matt. Hey, thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Sorry, Darren. Well, now, part of the reason why we have you on the show today is because of your Indiegogo campaign for Season 3 of Timekeeper. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Now, before we talk too much more about the crowdfunding campaign, can you give us the elevator pitch for Timekeeper for those of our listeners that haven't seen it yet. Sure, what I like to tell people, because it, it, it is kind of a broad, convoluted story of time travel, and that always gets a little complicated. So I, I generally say you take Quantum Leap and Memento, and Quantum Leap may not be in everyone's brain, especially for in the younger audience, but if you take Quantum Leap and Memento and you smash them together, if they had a baby, uh, you'd have Timekeeper. <laughs> it's kind of a darker time-traveling story, the main character has some uh, memory loss issues every time he he's uh, transported back in time. The powers that are controlling him steal his memory, kind of making them making him uh, their slave. He's given a task to do, and he's told that if he doesn't do it successfully, the uh, the world will face some dire cataclysm. Season one, episode one, we get the idea that because this this task is always innocuous, it's always something small and stupid. It's stand on this particular corner and hitchhike. It's eat a fish sandwich, cut in line to block someone who was supposed to be there at a certain time and place. He does it, and he, spe- he whiles away the hours um, before he's supposed to do something with anything that gives him instant gratification because he's going to forget it. So why not you know, get himself uh, something good in the moment? So he'll stand on, on a corner, and just as girls pass, he'll use the same pickup line over and over because <laughs> why not? And, uh, and that's how we meet Mitch. But by the end of, uh, of episode one, season one, uh, he's asked to kill someone. And even though, you know, his memory is erased, so he doesn't really know if this is the first time that, that that's been asked of him. It seems new. It seems like a, like a brand new thing. And he's forced to reevaluate this uh, this dynamic of just simply obeying this vague notion that the future will, will face this uh, this calamity and what kind of a man he is and what he's willing to do just to, uh, based on that faith. This, this is the same thing I tell my relatives. It's uh, it's, a, it's a, the perfect elevator pitch. because I, I stole it from Darren and I tell it to my friends, so... Darren, could you t- let us know uh, where this idea came from? What made you want to make the show? Sure. I mean, there's a couple of things. I mean, the first thing of why, why did I want to create a web series at all? And um, the first web series I saw was The Guild. And I, I feel like a lot of people had that same experience. I was a big, I'm a big Felicia Day fan. And uh, so when I saw that, I thought, you know, wow, this is really cool. It's short format. It's a direct connection to an audience. Obviously, she has a, a big following already, and uh, but she didn't have as big a one that back then. And the idea of the show itself um, came from a couple of places. One was uh, was um, just thinking about Star Trek. I mean, I've always been a huge fan of time travel in general and just thinking about those paradoxes that, that would come out and how would that really function in, in real the real world. 
But I always found it, um, you know, funny. Even I'm a huge Star Trek fan, and I always like to throw that out there because I'm not knocking the show. But whenever there was like a time loop episode, they would get to the end of the show and someone would ask the captain or someone, shouldn't this have happened first? And how did this get there if, th- if that never happened? And it seemed like there's something wrong with the order of things of how, how it could have worked. Kind of like that, you know, the Kyle Reese thing, how he went back in time and, uh, you know, impregnated um, Sarah Connor to have John Connor. How did that happen in the first place? It, <laughs> it, it required the future events. And then always uh, in Star Trek, someone would say, you know, Captain Janeway or, or whoever would say, oh, let, you know. Back back in college, back in the at the academy, um, we we would always just shake our heads and just not want to think about that. It's just too much. It gives you a headache, and it would kind of get brushed under that rug of that's not what their story is about. Um, their story was about that adventure. So I thought, well, why don't we take that idea, that complicated idea, and uh, make a show about that? What would happen if future powers got to the place where they could take something as complicated as that and make paradox a variable that could be collapsed into an iPod, and now they can control time with that as a, as a functioning thing in the universe. And so that's where the idea came from. Mm-hmm. And uh, for time travel, trying to develop the rules for your time travel. Um, that does, to be fair, it does always give me a headache. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, they're onto something with that. <laughs> yeah. Have you done some research on uh, theories about time travel? Or are you just drawing from, you know, ex- experience of lots of time travel viewing? Well, a combination. I mean, I'm... Um, I always like to read, you know, science journals and just just forums and and things that are posted online uh, whenever they're talking about, uh, you know, realistic uh, time travel and what would really happen. You know, just those thought experiments of what what would happen if you went back in time and and killed your grandparents, things like that. Um, You know, I I really like watching Interstellar and how they kind of played with that that concept of of, of time that could stretch and, and shrink. You know, just just thoughts about, you know, the closer you get to a massive object, a black hole or other, you, you realistically are bending space and time. And if you could you could capture that somehow and come back to the Earth, you, you would have effectively time traveled, even though it's not very helpful. But just the fact that I, mean, I, I think like anything in the universe, if it's possible, it's probably perfunctory, meaning it, it, it's, it's happening. If, if, if there's any possibility that it could exist under in, under a set of circumstances, there's probably some place in the vast universe that it's happening. And if that's true. If you accelerate far enough into the future, it, it's probably become something very easy to do in, in uh, you know, every, an everyday object like an iPod. Now, Matt, how much of that did you actually study about time travel before you played Mitch Manners? Actually, I mean, I love Darren mentioning Interstellar. Obviously, it came out after we'd done uh, the first two seasons. But absolutely, the idea in Interstellar made me feel rejuvenated in the in the focus of, of what we were doing because we it did fit inside of that possibility and uh, that was extremely interesting to me uh, to play Mitch specifically he didn't really know what was going on very much mm-hmm. which was a criteria of somebody who keeps losing losing his memory and only being told one thing and mm-hmm. then moving forward and so my research I suppose my backstory was uh, most what Mitch says because he says things he doesn't have to I mean like blinking and breathing and he he understands he's a type of person because of what comes out of his mouth and I suppose he's learning about himself as as the audience is learning about himself the way he reacts to things informs him his own character on who he might be because he's lost his memory but um, and so that was very useful for me. And it, it turns out he's quite pretty, you know, full of himself and mm-hmm. um, pretty pleased with the fact that he's a good person and everything that he does. I mean, to begin with, makes him seem to himself like a good person. And then he starts to wonder whether he's done something horrible. And that's very interesting dramatically to me. Mm-hmm to have a man wandering around thinking he's a good person, but wondering whether he might have done something awful. That's quite interesting. And yet having no power over his own trajectory, really. And Mm -hmm. that was good, too. And but I I, I think that the fact that the control that has been over Mitch Manners in the last two seasons is has been out of reach. And then uh, at the climactic moment of the last season, it seems like uh, Mitch Manners might have taken some sort of control, some element of control anyway, about his own destiny. Uh, that's quite exciting to me. So I'm, I'm very much looking forward to how he behaves with that. But um, being somebody who doesn't know what on earth is going on and then trying to behave 
correctly, I suppose, mm-hmm. has been uh, has been a wonderful experience. Yeah, because, I mean, did they pick him because he's a good person and they always know he'll do the right thing? Or is he, like, you know, a, a jailed convict from the future? They well, exactly. re- embraced his memory and he's a cocky SOB, kind of, because he kind of is. But with his memories of all the bad stuff gone, he can think he's a good person. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that that question hangs throughout the, 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 the series. And I love the fact that, uh, we don't know really whether he thinks he's a good person and really he's a horrible person or whether he thinks he's a good person who's done horrible things and regrets it or whether he's feeling like he should regret something that actually he, in his former self, was fine with. Mm-hmm, yeah. So, yeah, it's a curious situation to be... I mean, and I suppose you have to really kind of decide whether you like the character or not. Ultimately, I think he does prove himself to be a good person because regardless of who he used to be, whether he was a jailed convict SOB or a good person in the in the past, he does make a decision not to kill because that seems wrong to him. And hopefully that tells us a little bit about who he is now in the present and i suppose that's that's the only place any of us actually exist so i mean he he is good then like at that moment when he's making that decision regardless of who he was and who they picked mm-hmm. and i guess there's a little bit of a total recall kind of moment like at the very end where you know trying to question whether or not um he, he is the person that he's been uh who his actions have defined or the person that he was before, if you, if you recall that storyline. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to remember the end of it. It's been a long time. <laughs> <laughs> but at the, at the very end, uh, after they you know defeated the uh, evil organization and whatnot, uh, he's standing there with the girl and saying, I had a horrible thought. What if this really was all a dream? Uh, what if none of this was, uh, was real? If it was just something in my head while my brain was shutting down uh-huh. and that was part of it. But, but, but the main element of the story was, you know, his, kind of the evil version of him underwent the uh, the mind alteration to turn him into the kind of this uh, this patch who can infiltrate the um, the rebellion or, or whatever and uh, it's him having to decide whether or not he is that person or or, or the person who was reinvented and yeah, uh, yeah his, and his actions being uh, being the man he is well let's go into your guys's backgrounds a little bit so uh, look, for example Matt our, our listeners can tell from your voice that you're you're from across the pond originally, at least. I thought he had a speech impediment. No, I'm oh. just kidding. <laughs> or, it's, or it's fake. He's just that good. He's, he's a method. Just, he's a method actor. Yes. He's just, while well, he's playing Mitch Manners, he's going to pretend to be English until he gets another gig. Uh, you know, okay, tell us exactly. Little, tell us a little bit yeah. about you. I'll be, I'll be Mitch Manners until we've completed the DVD commentary. <laughs> he's really from like West Virginia. He's got like a Brooklyn accent yeah. or something. <laughs> Um, so. No, uh, no come on. I'm actually from Wisconsin, oh, which is you know also that, the, the Badger State along with the Cheese State, which I'm very proud of. <laughs> to be fair, it's not many people awesome. know that. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your journey as an actor from your original training and what led you to Timekeeper? Well, I was uh, I obviously grew up in England, just southwest of London, uh, near Windsor, I suppose is the nearest uh, landmark. And um, I studied Shakespeare in college and I moved over here because I have dual citizenship. Um, My father's American and he has a lot of family here. So I I decided to use the Tampa Bay area as my uh, first port of call when I decided to come to America for wonderful American adventures like I'd seen in the movies. (laughs) (laughs) Because I came from a very boring sort of drab, grey London. Of course, when I got to America, I saw that everybody thought London was drab, grey, and really cool. And so, exciting, yeah. Yeah, I, obviously I wasn't aware of that when I lived there, because it's all really <laughs> tedious, but once I got here, I saw with tourists' eyes that, oh, look at that, that actually looks really fun from a distance. Um, but anyway, I've accidentally lived here for 15 years, because I love Florida, it's, uh, it's really, really pleasant. My, a lot of my American family are here, and the opportunities I've been given here in First and foremost, the theatre community, which I was trained in, so that's where I aimed myself. I've been working with theatre companies in the Tampa Bay area for 15 years, and I've done plays with a wealth of talent, and 
with a frequency that I could never have expected to be rewarded with if I was in the West End and hoping to get some sort of off West End job doing a play. There are so many people hoping to do those same things. And I have friends who, who graduated drama school who have just never done the amount of plays that I've done living here, albeit for sometimes a smaller audience, but sometimes not. And uh, with an exceptionally talented group of people, which luckily Darren has also been been privy to and grabbed the best of and uh, in his connections with the theatre world, because, uh, you know, obviously in the Tampa Bay area, there's not as many people who have done film work as perhaps even in Orlando or certainly Atlanta or South Carolina or something like that, where their film industry is burgeoning. But we have a lot of massively talented people here, and I've 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 built my resume in theatre the way I couldn't have done anywhere else, and it's been extremely rewarding and educational for me. And working with Darren on on film has been even more so because I, I that's a different animal completely. So I've really enjoyed working with uh, with Darren and learning the difference between working for a, a, a theatre audience and working for a camera that's just a few feet away from your face. And it's, <laughs> that's been wonderfully, wonderfully educational for me. It is a big difference. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I watched the first season and I think, oh, I could have done with about, you know, one third the amount of facial expressions in that <laughs> one scene. And then by season two, I, I, I watch myself and I think, oh, you know, maybe I figured it out a little bit. And it, <laughs> it, it becomes better as we go along. But uh, I, I've, I've been absolutely hugely grateful for this experience. Great. And Darren, what's your uh, your background in film? Go ahead, follow that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I started on a little isle in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And I had a load of gear out of sheer will. <laughs> He's from the Isle of Man. You just can't tell from his accent. It's fantastic. I would dive in the water and kill sharks, bring them on, on my little paddle boat. And, you know. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I guess he's probably going to go with Life of Pi. Did you have a tiger? <laughs> a small one. It was, it was, it was a baby. Between Life of Pi and Andy Kaufman. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I, I uh, was born in Long Island, New York, and uh, lived there till I was about 10 years old. My father, um, probably the closest connection I had to like film in general, my, my father went to the New York Institute of Photography. He worked for Color by Deluxe in the, uh, the film chain. And he got to, you know, meet a lot of cool people just just, just being in that in environment. And uh, one thing he, he would do is he, I mean, he, he would constantly be taking pictures. Uh, we have like 10 tomes of uh, family albums and whatnot. So I, I always had that kind of thing going on in the background. And, and um so I, I got kind of an interest in film through that. I started off actually, once we moved down here and I was going through school, going to college, I went to the University of South Florida and uh, they had a film program there, but I started off in engineering, quickly decided that I really didn't want to stay in that, even though I had that kind of a technical brain, but um, uh, I kind of graduated more towards the uh, the arts and uh, got involved with their film program and their photography program. It was kind of in a weird place because um, a lot of things were moving over to digital and mass communications at that time. So I think schools that weren't as like hardcore into it were shifting away from like true a true film program into more more of that mass communications. That's kind of what happened to me. So I was kind of halfway through um, the film program and they kind of made that decision. So it's just kind of the story of my own bad luck. My, my last name is Murphy after all that I was I was like <laughs> partway through the program. And they decided they, they made that announcement, but said anyone who was in the program could obviously finish it. But, you know, that's another way of saying we're not putting any more money into this. So, you know, they still had like uh, an editing room with flatbeds and um, and, and uh, tape deck um, uh, editors, things like that. They had an old steam back there and, uh, and a film chain for transferring film, uh, shot a lot of things on 16 millimeter. But uh, a lot of things would break and they, they just had a kind of a tech genius there who would sit there if something broke down and would fix it with solder and, and stuff. So things would just be down like you go into the lab and oh, it might be another couple hours. And that was a little weird and stressful. But um, coming out of that um, experience, you know, I graduated with a degree in studio arts and I decided as my last project there. Uh, I did a directed study, one of the requirements for finishing out the uh, film program. And uh, I, I knew I would never finish a feature uh, in a semester, but um, I, I decided I was going to make a feature on 16 millimeter. 
So I decided I was going to spend what little money I had to uh, to buy um, an Eclair ACL 16 millimeter camera and shoot a, a black and white film, feature length film, because I'm insane. And <laughs> I went, I set about doing that and quickly learned that golden rule of, you know, you're going to shoot a lot more than you're going to, um, uh, then what's going to, you know, the final product's going to be, which everyone knows, but I, I failed to consider quite how much. So I ended up starting to borrow money from, you know, my mother, my father, anyone I could just to keep the film going. And I actually still have all the film sitting in my closet because I just can't bear to throw it away. And I think we probably shot like something like 20,000 feet of film. And uh, I, I finished it. And it's one of those things where I think every filmmaker along their path, uh, whether you're a director of photography, uh, editor, whatever, you have that project you never, ever, ever want to look at again. And that's what I have. I have like an hour and a half long film that I, I finished. So that's that's a success. Finishing a feature is a is a feat. And it's but it's one of those things where, you know, it would probably would have made a lot more sense to do like a digital short to, you know, to learn to learn those things than those lessons versus a 16 millimeter film feature film, um, because you can see throughout throughout the course of the experience, things get better technically and um, and just in general in terms of lighting, in terms of production value, in terms of direction. So anyway, that's my story of how I started. But I, I will say I learned a lot. It's just I, I took the, the wrong avenue to getting it. So after that, go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, it is a feat, but it's essentially like running a marathon all by yourself. Right. <laughs> it's it, it like is. You, you ran it, but no one's ever going to know. <laughs> well, people know. The people who are involved know, and they've seen it. And uh, but yeah, no one else will ever know. I'll make sure of that uh, the VHS copy is still sitting on my uh, on my shelf, and I'll keep it there, and I'll never watch it again. Uh, <laughs> maybe one day, maybe when I'm like 80, I'll be like, all right, let's whip this thing out, find someone who has a VCR, <laughs> you know, <laughs> rotting away in their attic, and we'll we'll watch this and laugh. So what's um, what's the name of it? So then I can imagine from yeah. now on what it could be. <laughs> sure, sure. And it, it's it's very meta, which is very me. It's uh, called Live, Cry, Shampoo, and Die, and it's it's um, I'm trying to think of how I describe. I don't know it. where to go with that. <laughs> it, and it, it it's my, my I think my tagline was a semi autobiographical um, parody of events that never happened was my tagline. I, you know that doesn't help any at yeah. all. I still so to, don't know what to do with that. So to give some some more real world context, um, it was basically I was working uh, in a corporate job, which I still am. Um, but at the time, I was in college, and the corporate job I, I worked at, I, I really did not want to be at. But it's you know it's my source of funds. I'm thankful to say at least you know the job I have now. I, I like going to. It's just you know it's not the the thing that drives me as far as you know like arch. But um, at the time, it, it was run by, you know, um, kind of like the, the stereotypical dictator of a, of a CEO who oh, yeah. uh, would kind of like, you know, lord over, you know, the, uh, the office. And so I kind of took that to the nth degree. Uh, and it, it was a place that made shampoo. So I had it kind of where the you never saw the, uh, the, the, that, that boss, but he always talked to people through um, conference call on a phone. And the phone was placed on a pedestal higher above than anyone else. He's <laughs> like an and, evil Charlie from order. Charlie's Angels. Exactly. Exactly. So. And it, it was kind of a soil and greens kind, kind of story where sales were flagging and suddenly there was an accident in the in the shampoo plant where uh, a cleaner was in one of the tanks and accidentally the safeties weren't properly installed and it turned on and he ended up getting mixed up in the shampoo and no one knew. And so it kept the product kept getting shipped out and people kept so all of a sudden really liked it and orders went, went up and up and up and they had to figure out, well, how do we keep this going? Do we start killing people? Uh, do we use animals and stuff like that? So yeah, that's kind of the weird uh, feature that I decided to make. So. It's like soylent green meets shampoo. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, it was an interesting experience, and uh, yeah. So coming out of that, I mean, just uh, not to make a long story short, um, I uh, basically learned like a lot of people learn after you get out of school. Uh, everything else on a, on a set, working on productions, other people's productions, started some of my own, and uh, yeah, met a lot of great people in the area. And like anything, when you work with people that, that you're, you're that you find uh, conducive on a set, you, you get their information and you don't let them go. And uh, a lot of those people came into time. So see, Matt, you'll never escape. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to be pretending to be English forever. <laughs> That's right. Get used to that accent. <laughs> I know. You've got it down, man. It's good. <laughs> um, <laughs> so for the character, since there's a lot of mystery and the character was suffering from amnesia and such, how much of the of the character background and story did you, Darren, reveal to Matt as you went per season? And 
and and then how much did you have to make up with that? What you didn't know, Matt. The backstory <laughs> is a delightful gift to any actor because I keep losing my memory. So the good thing is that as long as I know as little as possible about what's going on, then I'm quite believable in the fact that. I have no idea what's going on. So, Darren, you keep... I mean, the I love the project so much that I... No, no, I, I, he didn't. And I had read what was going to happen. But it's so cryptic. And until it happens on screen, it's very... It's a mosaic of a story. So what I was doing was one thing. And then it really... I, I saw what I did much, much later edited into the story and then I realized okay so that's really what I was what I was driving toward but my character doesn't know what he's going to he thinks that he's just fulfilling this task and possibly becoming a better person and hopefully so but he doesn't know and every time he fulfills one task he gets shoved back to a place where he has to start figuring that out all over again so it's not as though he makes leaps and bounds or chapter by chapter he you know uh, episode by episode he figures out more and more about himself every time he goes back in time he has to once again decide whether he's a good person or not and <laughs> decide which direction he's going to go which I think is a wonderful aspect of the story it's just very interesting to, to watch a person who's just teetering on the edge of am I Am I good or am I supposed to do this horrible thing? I mean, am, am I a person who does this horrible thing or am I not that person? Because inside Mitch Manners, it seems to me from the script that he isn't that horrible person. He wants to be a good person. So what I gained from it as a character study to, to find out how I was going to behave was that he keeps thinking he's good even though there's evidence to suggest that he's done bad things, he keeps grabbing hold of the fact that he is a good man and that matters. And if he keeps doing that, even though his memory is erased, then that must mean that he possibly is a good person. Even if he's a good person now and was a horrible person, like you suggested, he was a, you know, a, an inmate who was a, an SOB and, and grabbed for this uh, a la uh, running man. You know, these yeah. people can either serve their life sentence or run around and be killed by a guy covered in light bulbs. I mean, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that this guy it has been grabbed. And at least now, regardless of his backstory before he was grabbed, is finding the good in humanity and trying to do good. And I think that that's interesting, that we don't know where he came from. We don't know whether he's a horrible, horrible person or whether he's a good person who was plucked out of life. We just know that he keeps trying to make the decision to be a good person over and over again in the and then, present. And then just, um, so, I mean, I, so I, obviously with a, a character like that, you know, Matt is forced to play it like that. But there, there are two things he does get to hang on to, and that's something we, we talked about. I'm not sure if we do spoilers on your show or not. Should we do spoilers? It's up to you. It's your show. Well, you already, oh, mentioned, the not, we already <laughs> mentioned the not killing somebody, so. Yeah, okay. let's do a All couple right. of spoilers. All right, spoilers. so spo spoiler alert. Okay, but yeah, so there's two things, Put Matt. your fingers in yours and go, la, 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 if you don't want to hear. <laughs> All right, and I, I'll soften them. I'll do kind of quasi-spoilers. Okay, so there's two things he has to hang on to, and the first one was, you know, he he, he chose not to uh, to kill someone, and this happens right at the beginning, so you don't need to have much of a spoiler. I think by the end of, uh, in season one, he, he chooses to disobey the powers, and he's given two things. One is he's fast-forwarded in time, and he gets something he really wants, which is the love of, of, of this woman. But it's all downloaded into his head, like all at once. So he wakes up and he has two years of memories, which is something brand new. So suddenly a character who couldn't move forward, couldn't progress um, thematically or, or, or dramatically, suddenly has a, little, a two year backstory. And it is basically being in love with this woman. So he's given a gift and he thinks he's, he's he, he finally has broken out of the cycle. But he's also given a punishment. And that punishment is that the world is facing some catastrophe. So like, it's almost like, look, the powers are saying, you, you disobeyed and this is what happens. And then he's pushed back in time again. It's almost like an initiation ritual of uh, you disobey and, and, and you get to see what, uh, what, what your disobedience has wrought. 
and he's given that option again of, of killing someone else. And he kind of makes a deal with himself because he, he sees the world and he knows what's going to happen to the world if he disobeys. He gets himself a little drunk uh, for doing it. and he But he makes this deal with himself that he's going to forget. So it, it gets into that good person, bad person mentality of I have to do it to save the world. It's an evil thing, but I will forget. But getting into season two, for whatever reason, and he still doesn't know why, that, that act haunts him. So every time, wherever he goes, he's got two things to latch on to. One is that, that act in its... Um, it, it keeps flashing across his mind, almost like that evil thing you've done or that bad thing you've done or the way you've treated someone in your life that, you know, sometimes trickles up and you, you feel bad about. And and the thing that he's barred, now barred from because he's been pushed back in time is that love of his life, because now the love of his life is a stranger. Because the further he goes back in time, the more he, she doesn't know him. And he, he almost he, one of his favorite activities now, rather than sitting on a street corner and hitting on girls, is to stalk her. And she doesn't know who he is, so he'll just show up sitting at a table, you know, just staring at her weirdly like, a, you know, like a creepy stalker. That's the so. way to a girl's heart. So that's kind of the, the two pieces Absolutely. here. As far as backstory uh, that Mitch has to hang on to is, you know, he's barred from, from what he wants, and um, he's haunted by what he's done. And he didn't have, before that, it was just, just you know, every mission was this boring thing, and uh, he decided to get through it. Mm-hmm. And so season three is really where... Um, you know, we finally get to see the connecting thread back to his original life and what that was. That'll be a major turning point for uh, for Mitch because um, it's something that'll be brand new for him, and it gets to have some of that colored in. So he's got he gets to have a mix of who he was and who he's trying to be at the same time. How many episodes will be in season three? So if if this, uh, the funding is successful, and that's that's a big if. Um, my plan is you know season um, one was in that like you know. Seven to ten minute range. There were six episodes. Season two was about the same, maybe more like six to ten minute episodes. And there was ten. So I, I I thought because you know I like a serialized story, but uh, I think one of the negatives I would apply to myself on season one and two is that everything was was super serialized. It was literally one episode ended, next episode began with with that same thread. So for season three, I wanted to give myself a little more time, do fifteen minute episodes, have at least a subplot that can rise and fall and be resolved like a little short film that still has an overarching thread that runs the whole season and then do, uh, do six of them. So it probably is about 50% longer than season two, but uh, just six 15 minute episodes instead of, uh, you know, 15 at the whatever, six to 10 minute range. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a good plan. With the Indiegogo, how much are you looking for and what kind of perks are there? So the goal is uh, 15,000. We are 13% of the way there, so we've got just over 2,000. There's 15 days left to go, so the runway is quickly shrinking. It's freaking me out a little bit. Stay up way too late every night, you know, trying to think of how to push that message out there. And as far as perks, I mean, some of our standard perks are we've got Timekeeper t-shirts, two different kinds. There are DVDs. You can get season one, season two, and then the, the forthcoming season uh, season three. Some buttons, all that kind of stuff. And then, of course, you know, the, the higher value perks you can be named as, you know, a producer, executive producer, set visit, um, featured extra, uh, if you want, if, especially if you're local. And then some of the more out of the box uh, uh, perks are, you know, Mitch has a little time travel device that he's given in season two, which has some neat little functions like freeze. You can freeze time and you can do some other things. And so one is to, to name an app. So you can um, come up with one. So as Mitch is scrolling through his list of options, like, uh, you know, like an iPhone, um, yours can come up. If yours is super cool, we may just use yours instead in, uh, in the script. And uh, you, you get to be noted um, in the credits as a time app developer. Um, <laughs> another one I thought I thought would be you know, pretty cool is you take an element fictional or true uh, from your own life and you can, uh, you can write it as a background element into the story. So Mitch Manners does a lot of running as uh, we've seen in, in, uh, in the course of the seasons. And so your event could be something he blasts through. If you propose to someone, whatever, we can have a little moment. If you have a series of your own that's independent, if we want to have someone wearing a T-shirt, Mitch can run past that person, not bowl them over, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we also have, um, you know, like like Skype calls or, or Google Hangouts, things like that with the casting crew. Oh, I like those. Very nice. Especially like the inserting your, your own story into it. Yeah. yeah, I thought that'd be a little fun. It's a little immortalized and it's specialized for you. Yeah, yeah, it's really neat. So why Indiegogo versus Kickstarter or some other campaign? Honestly, because you know, I was going to do Indiegogo because they, you, know, you basically get what you get and then they just take a bigger bite. That was my plan right up until like the last second when I'm like, you know, I really, 
you know, season one, no one got any pay with, with very few exceptions. Uh, there were some people who had to commit a lot more of their time um, and really like take time off of work. So they got some pay for that. And then there was insurance and things like that. So we probably spent between four or $5,000 in season one. Season two was was more ambitious. I, I, I needed to have uh, some things that were set, like an assistant director that could be there every all, all the time, production sound that could be there all the time, not trying to have PAs learn how to do sound, which freaks me out. So we, we so there was some pay. It was it was it was cut rate. I mean, everyone who worked on season two really had to believe in the project to come. It was 15 days of shooting, but still everyone who got paid got paid a, a much reduced rate from what they they normally would get. But going going into season three and looking back, I still had to take on a lot of the elements, especially in post production, uh, on myself. So all of the um, the editing, the um, um, the post production sound, the visual effects, I all had to do myself, and it all had to be you know serialized. I can't do you know two things at once. So those are things I really want to inject some more money into because I, I'm not an effects expert. So I'm bang basically banging my head against the wall trying to figure out how to make you know 2D into 3D things like that. I decided like at that last second with my finger hovering over the Indiegogo option of fixed versus uh, flexible to go fixed. And I regret that like every second, but still I think it's probably the right choice. But it's, but which is kind of the same as Kickstarter in just a different platform. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I'd already set it all up. So I was like, all right, well, well I'm already there. So <laughs> <laughs> is this your first time, your first experience with crowdfunding and, and Matt, is this your first experience also being in a project with a crowdfunding campaign? It is for me, yeah. Well, it certainly is for me also, yeah. I've been uh, trying to repost everything uh, Darren has posted, so everybody on my Facebook page gets to see it. But, uh, yeah, it's been my first uh, opportunity to be involved in a, in a project that's been crowdfunded, yes. I've enjoyed some of the videos and also um, the tweets and, and such that you've done. Oh, I like the humor mixed in with it. and. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you can tell these guys don't have a sense of humor at all. No, I know. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And the voting on, on uh, if how many times? Uh, I vote I more. Yeah, the crowbar. Yeah, more. 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 Yeah. 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 Uh, if we give you more money, we should be rewarded with more hits yeah. to the face. I mean, it's just a, this, that's common sense. And I think if they pay enough, they could be an extra who actually has the crowbar. I'm just yeah. saying. Who's allowed to, to do the swiping themselves. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I think that's I think, fair. I think so. I mean, yeah. as, as an actor and a, a person interested in the project, I think that's a great idea. As the person who's playing Mitch Manners, uh, it sounds like a terrible idea. All you've done is convince me that say? it's great. <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm basically thinking it's a really good idea. I'm just not looking forward to when I get whacked in the face a bunch of times. But hey, I, I would like to entertain the people who are enjoying the show. So Suffer for your art, man. Just suck <laughs> exactly. it up and suffer for your art. <laughs> I was told I would, but I didn't know it would be so literal. But that's fine. Well, maybe it wasn't literal over in London, but here. Here, they meant get hit in the face with a crowbar. Yeah, in America, don't... you know, we have Tom Cruise like holding on the side of a plane for real. Exactly. <laughs> I will, I will strap myself to the side of a crowbar and get hit in my own face somehow <laughs> if we can make that happen. And that's actually one of the fun because I, I, I've still yet to receive a vote. And I put out other caption contests and things like that, and I'll get people to chime in with, with you know, votes of what, what the caption should be. But I still, that's the first vote I've heard. I'm like, come on. Yeah. I mean, that, that sounds like the funnest thing to me to vote on. And the funny thing to, to me about, uh, you know, season two is where the kind of the crowbar came in. It's kind of one of our themes now. I asked the um, the art department guy, I'm like, okay, we're going to need like a fake crowbar because we can't be hitting Matt with a real crowbar. That'd be a little tough. Not to mention the, 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 uh, the actress wielding it probably take after take doesn't want to have this heavy thing. And he got he got one, and the thing was like made out of this like super solid. I don't even know if it was foam or what, but it, it weighed like the same. I'm like, we still can't hit him in the face with this. Like, we just, we yeah. just paid for our inexpensive, you know, lethal objects. And thanks for that, though. And yeah. So, well, it would have just bruised him. It would have wouldn't have like broken any bones. It would yeah, have just. Yeah. Oh no no no! It would have definitely broken. <laughs> In my face. <laughs> well, was, see, but uh, we the, always say rather than you know, we always just say we can't seriously injure the actor because it'll yeah. mess with continuity. Yeah. <laughs> we weren't really. And we, 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 I, we were I, okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> and um, IDT in Tampa, which is the International Academy of Design Technology, they let, they let us shoot there for free. And um, one of the places they let us shoot, which we weren't using it for this purpose, but it was like their 3D studio. It was like this fully blacked out space and they had cameras set all around and like this kind of, 
you know, um, um, flooring that was like kind of a, a hardened foam. And so one of the parts was, you know, the actor was supposed to throw down the crowbar and, and they do it, did it once. And it was this huge, heavy thud. And, you know, the thing is still kind of sharp. I'm like, if we can't even throw it on the ground, even then this foam pad is because we're going to like scuff everything up. Oh, wow. Ginger <laughs> just went to Home Depot and got a crowbar. I would say at least it's not sharp, but crowbars uh, are at least sharp. No, so. yeah. no. It's more of a blunt force instrument. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well. Well, luckily they used the back of the crowbar, which is curved. Yeah, so true. it was a thump rather than a jab. So, <laughs> I was happy with that. So what's a tip you would like to share? If, if we have a listener on who's trying to do crowdfunding, you know, what, what lesson have you learned so far uh, that might help someone else? Don't do crowdfunding. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, th- I think, you know, the biggest thing I learned probably about the series in general, which which, which I think applies, is I, I fell into the same trap, I think, as um, a lot of filmmakers who aren't marketing or don't specialize in marketing. And obviously, the further you get into, like, web content, you got to wear that hat, at least at least partially, was, you know, when I made the series, I just kind of built it, spent all of my time finishing it, polishing it, and then I just kind of stuck it out there. So here it is, everyone. Come see this. And rather than, you know, building it up before there was a thing. And making everyone excited about it, you know, about sci-fi and time travel, even without a thing to show, would probably be a better a better way to go. You know, having that audience waiting for something and then dropping it in their lap versus, you know, dropping it down and saying, all right, everyone, where'd you go? Where'd you go? Come on, stop watching all the cat videos. <laughs> so You should have I mean, more cats. You should have a time traveling cat. Time traveling grumpy cat. I should just dangle a piece of string. <laughs> I did actually that was one of my polls of like you know which make, makes a better time traveling companion dogs or cats you know cats. or both mass hysteria oh well mm. now they both mass get, hysteria yeah <laughs> if you take the ghostbusters idea but I think they can get along <laughs> I think the dogs absolutely can. I mean if there's a piece of string one of them's going to go for it first and yeah. if there's two there are two pieces of string one with a fluffy mouse and one with a small plastic bone then you know we got it figured out we can yeah. direct them it's your can yeah but i think i think in terms of crowdfunding you know i mean I, one of the things I, i've done you know because as i've submitted to festivals and and what i've gotten in uh, i've tried as much as possible i, I think most of, i i've gone to so um you know going to vancouver going to you know miami is obviously closer atlanta's closer but um salt lake city uh, every place I've gone, I've tried to, you know, pay attention in the marketing uh, panels and, and try and soak up all that that knowledge. But yeah, I, I think the biggest thing is is growing that audience before you try and and uh, and get people to to want to donate to it. I think that's that's the hard part for me because you know I'm not I don't really wear that marketing hat, and uh, I, I would love it if I had someone from the beginning who did who just kind of natively had that as part of their being and could uh, could push it out there at the same time. I, I think that would have been a great thing while we were shooting everything to be like, especially now with Periscope. I, mean, I try to do some, some of those as we've done some of like the teasers for season three to do Periscopes and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wish I had been doing more of that as we've gone along, just shooting stuff out from set all the time. I've seen, you know, like LARPs um, as they're doing season two, you know, Scott's Kynes, he did like a, I don't know if it was every day or whatever. Um, and just all, all of the cast kind of doing that kind of stuff, I, I think would have been super helpful. But of course, all of that's in retrospect. Yeah. So, uh, that's, that's my a, advice. Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's like a must do now because I think whenever like Felicia Day started and back in 2007, 2008 and stuff, there was so few original web series content. Now there's a lot more trying to vie for attention on top of traditional TV making a move to Netflix and Hulu and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you really got to... Got to be a marketer too, which they don't teach in, in uh, film school. No. So. so good luck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, that, and I think spending the time of, you know, engaging with your audience, you know, there's been a lot of discussion um, on web series today, especially, uh, you know, I follow um, as many, and that's, that's another thing is it, it soaks up a lot of your time, you know, gen- genuinely engaging with different groups. But um, um, when, when you go and see it, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, stop just link dumping, stop coming to, to all these sites and just dropping your link, watch my show. You, know, you check out other people's shows, talk to them, get to know the creators and, and you know, cross promote. And that's not going to happen with you just firing off emails to everyone saying, hey, promote my show. But if you're watching their stuff, commenting on it and get, getting to know them um, and building that, that um, you know, friendship and community, I think goes a long way. Mm-hmm. For sure. And Matt, do you have any tips for people who might go into acting and, and how to pretend you're British? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. I do. Of course. First of all. 
uh, watch a lot of uh, period films. So you sound like somebody who is always smoking a pipe and wearing a monocle. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, like, so like really everyone get caught up on like Poldark this season on Masterpiece Theatre. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, if, no, if, if, if you're an actor who's trying to be an Englishman in America and you don't know what Poldark is, then... You're heading in the wrong direction. You just... are. You can tell I'm a public television geek, essentially. Absolutely. And uh, possibly add in uh, just a sous-son of singing detective, because you've got to be fun. Oh. Yeah. And just have some of that going on, and then watch all of Blackadder, all of the young ones, uh, <laughs> all of Spaced, all of The Office, and prepare yourself well for being an English person in the 21st century. So, like, Red Dwarf well. won't help any? Oh, Red Dwarf will definitely help. I've okay, got all good. seven seasons here. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Now, uh, well, my, genuinely, uh, what I would suggest to anybody trying to be an actor, and it is a very difficult, it's a saturated market at the best of times, and certainly in places where, like the Tampa Bay area, is not a huge film hub, but there are massively talented people, Darren being one of the excelling people in this area but there are a lot of very talented people the cinematographers he manages to get are exceptional it looks really good what he manages to get whether it's him doing it or his uh, his colleagues who he's found through you know trial and error and finding the best people for the job he's done exceptionally well and found some really good people to work with and they do they are here and Tampa Bay is not you know, obviously Hollywood, New York, there are a lot of people doing this stuff over there, but it's a lot more uh, competitive and here, well, I suppose anywhere, somebody trying to be an actor should learn what who they are to other people, how they come across to other people, because I think a, a lot of times we assume we could do anything. You know, I could play uh, Puck or Gandalf, uh, just give me the script. <laughs> You know, that's not going to happen. That's not what people are looking for. People see you and they make a decision. So make sure that you present yourself in a way where you can put your own attributes that you have forward in their best light and contrast them as far as possible with the other end of the spectrum of what you have to offer. And then um, people will know what they can use you for and they'll see the middle ground and they'll bring you back from the high point and up from the low point and that they can work with, uh, make yourself a malleable tool for a filmmaker to actually use, much like a camera, a lens, editing suite, anything else. You know, make yourself available to to go high, low, wherever they like, and they can do the rest. Hmm. Very good. So either learn your craft or be a tool. So be a I'm tool. Really sure. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> Well, like a, well, like a really cool tool, like a, you know, we, like a, like a super, super cool drill. Like, you know? a, like a, well, we, like a sonic screwdriver. There you well, go. We lost the empire, so I suppose just being a tool in America is what we've got left. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, we we fought a war to get away from you, but we still like you. <laughs> it does seem like we're slowly inching it back. <laughs> television program by television program, we'll take this. We'll take this company go. back if it's the last thing we do. Essentially, you're just instead of a massive military, you're doing a massive PR campaign. Exactly, we're peopling it with uh, celebrities. <laughs> I mean, you know, we love Patrick Stewart too. Of course, and <laughs> Hugh Laurie for president. Oh, well, sure. Yeah. So, but, but, but we did. We, but we didn't make. We didn't make Matt adopt a, an American accent. We did talk about it at the very beginning. Yeah. Can, can you do an American accent? <laughs> Not now. I've been speaking for forty minutes. That would sound painful. If you'd never heard me speak before, then you would have. You would have believed my American accent. But well, now I'm it'll just be cringingly bad. I'll pretend to believe you. Okay, well, cl uh, close your eyes so you don't okay. have to look at my face. Okay. We're, we're not actually looking at your face. Everybody's looking at my face. I'm an actor. <laughs> <laughs> There's not an accent I can do when I don't sound like I'm from Wisconsin pretending to be a white guy when I'm actually Martin Lawrence. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> And I wasn't just pretending to think it was pretty good. That was pretty good. <laughs> That's pretty good. I mean, if I had a script, I could learn my lines and then I could convince you guys that oh, I was American. Oh, oh, but it's for getting now, better the longer you're going, to be honest. 
I thought it got worse the longer I went. <laughs> no, I don't know. You did Angry American really well. Thanks. Well, uh, that is the, uh, the the default American. <laughs> no yeah, offense. it seems to be. Every, I, I'm always sort of shocked by the uh, the crazy stereotypes. Well, no, I was I went to England recently, and I did hear American people in London because I went to London uh, like like I was a tourist because I'd like to go and see the things that I never enjoyed when I lived there because I thought they sucked. But then I went back. <laughs> And I, I wanted to see them because I realized that they were genuinely decent things. And I, I walked around and I, I did hear American people more than I heard um, Japanese or Swedish people, for example, because they speak quieter. But American people <laughs> did say, honey. And it was it was like a, a, a European vacation film. A little bit. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I heard. A, well, I've read a, a description from someone who was. English and coming to America for the first time and 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 they said it's not so much that Americans are loud Americans aren't afraid of being heard that's correct exactly <laughs> and, you know because we really aren't going to say anything we'd have a problem with someone hearing <laughs> no it's it's wonderful because I've I've stood wondering where which direction from the tube station was Madame Two Swords but luckily there was a man with a fanny pack and a camera <laughs> saying, which way is Madame Tussauds? Well, uh, uh, honey, come over here. This uh, <laughs> policeman, this, this English policeman with the amusing tit-like hat is uh, is going to tell us which way Madame Tussauds is. So uh, that's where we'll go. <laughs> well, at least that, they know that cop won't shoot them. <laughs> exactly. No, that, I think that they felt finally comfortable in front of a police officer. <laughs> They thought, well, you're basically giving us directions, right? Because you don't have a gun, so I don't... Nothing else I mean, do. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm being derogatory toward American tourists when really I'm half American and I, I feel very, very fondly toward the American people. So I, I, I take that back. All these fanny packs are. I've, I've, I don't, I, I, I've never seen a person in like 20 years with a fanny they're, they're pack. They're out there. I, yeah, go to Europe. Airports? Like, I think, no, the thing is that on the web, my girlfriend said, I took her to England earlier this year for the first time she'd never been before, and she said, should we get one of those money pouches? And I and she's an, an American person, so she said, should we get one of those money pouches? <laughs> and I, I said, well, she said it much higher than that, obviously. Should we get one of those money pouches? And I said, no, Bill. <laughs> she said, should we get one of those money pouches? And I said, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And she said, you know, just to secure your funds, because there are a lot of pickpockets in London. And I said, do you mean like London Fog and like Top Hats? And I mean, what are you talking about? This isn't Oliver. <laughs> But this on the web, she learned that she was supposed to strap her money into a belt-like thing under her clothing, and I, I said, "Well, we just put it in your pocket." <laughs> it's like a normal person. But, um, well, I, I mean, you know. have like those discreet things that you can put, and and you, but you would put something flat so it, it wouldn't be noticeable, you know. Exactly. If you had to, for some reason, travel with your passport into central London, then you would like to have it somewhere where someone couldn't. Like, I went it in, out of your see, back I, I had that because I had my American passport literally strapped inside my clothes in the Balkans in the 90s. So that was like a, a there you go. Yeah, I mean, that seems necessary. That, that was important, you know. Absolutely. I, you know, I had, I had money that I was going, cash I was going to be spending out in pockets. Sure, but the one thing that will get you home safe, you know, right. you want to one put thing next that to your I skin. just have to go knock on the door of the American consulate and try to exactly and say, by the way, um, uh, funny, funny story. <laughs> funny story. I was yeah. in Zagreb. And, I was wandering uh, around a dark alley in Minsk, and somebody <laughs> told me I could get a falafel. But I don't know. I've mixed horrible geographical areas. Yeah, I, yeah, I was nowhere near. I was like in Zagreb, and, and some guy said there was a really great party down the alley. You know. <laughs> yeah. All I had to do was give them my American passport, so I yeah, could go in. That way, I, I could show them my ID. Yeah. Exactly. Just I, to I confirm. Wasn't young. <laughs> I do understand that people want to keep their belongings safe, but I, I'm sure we've deviated from the subject somewhat. <laughs> um, 
trying to figure this out. I guess the the international. I I I've been fanny in pack. other countries. We had an episode where fanny packs. Yes, out, I, I have been. I have traveled and lived internationally and never once had a fanny pack. Amazing. Well, I'm glad for you, and I feel <laughs> I feel confident that. You and I have enjoyed the non-fanny pack life. Um, <laughs> I don't but so like, many haven't. I don't feel I've missed you just, out. You just get a long coat like his character. <laughs> I've, seen I've seen Highlander. You can pack swords hey, even. Hey, Highlander managed to put a sword under a short jean jacket. That's, so that's a good point as well. I don't know how, but he did. I don't, well, a PA off screen, I think he did it too. Clearly. Yeah, it was extendable. <laughs> like a telescopic sword for the new millennium. Expanding uh, samurai sword. <laughs> I like him. He knows Highlander. <laughs> yeah, of course. You have to know Highlander. It's a very important. Absolutely. <laughs> I always wanted to be Highlander. And luckily, Darren made me the next best thing. Yes. Yeah. Way to go, Darren. You get yeah. his coat and everything. I think his character needs a sword. There needs to be a sword fight. Yeah. <laughs> For like no reason at all. So no reason at all. Sword fight. It, yeah, just incongruously, oh, I just happen to have this. <laughs> have him chop off somebody's head, and it just happens to be a thunderstorm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he could be fighting some bad guy in a, in a museum, and he grabs his sword, and he grabs his sword, and yeah, yeah. got a sword fight. There you go. <gasps> exactly. I we'll see possibilities. From the new millennium, there can be only zero one zero zero one one zero zero. The people from the future can whip out their ray gun. Oh, it's out of juice. Okay, we go to swords next. That's next <laughs> yeah, we're on gonna the list. To, we're gonna have to next go on the list. On this. Next on the list of death implements is ray gun down to sword. Yeah, <laughs> they all studied like um, archaic weapons or something. I think that's an excellent idea. It is. See, you can thank us. That's another there reason go. to go on Indiegogo and fund it, because then we could just add that element. Yeah, sword yeah. fights. Sword fights. Okay, hitting Mitch in the face more. Yeah, sorry, Matt. And, um, no, no offense and, taken. And then, then uh, swords. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sword fight. Swords. Sword fighting. That'd be great. If, think, you promise, you... if you promise more crowbar hits to the you... face and swords, you will get more money. So, Darren, do you think Mitch Manners would have muscle memory for a sword? Or would he be just like, what's going on? <laughs> oh. I think he would hope that it would kick in once his memories fly back and then be like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, and have to, like, have to just get scrappy. I think that's what Mitch would have to do. Wouldn't people assume that because I have an English accent that, like, intrinsically... Like the instinct of fencing would pop in. It's come down. It's I'd come down the centuries. Yeah. I'd assume that. I'd assume that ridiculously absurd stance of somebody who's doing a sword fight completely unnecessary for a normal sword fight. Wait, you guys don't duel. The, I would I'm parry and so thrust. I'm so disappointed. Those PBS shows have lied to me. Yeah. No, we parry and thrust a lot. <laughs> Well, we weren't going to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's most, but mostly the private schools. But. <laughs> it's a great school requirement, Harry and Yeah, we <laughs> Wow. Okay, this has been tons of fun. <laughs> we got in some in interesting tangents. So, well, thanks a lot, guys. It's been great talking with you. I yeah. wish you the best of luck with the campaign. Thank you very much. There can be only Thank one, you. and we hope it's Timekeeper. And just a reminder, everybody, where, can, where can they find you and Timekeeper online? Sure. Uh, Timekeeper, the main site is uh, timekeepershow.com. You can find links to um, you know, our YouTube channel, to um, Stream Now TV um, and JTS TV, where we're both on. Those are both also on Roku. And Twitter and Facebook are, are both Timekeeper Show. And again, you can find those all through the main site as well. All right. Well, thanks a lot, guys, and, and good luck, and, and please keep in touch. Thanks, guys. Absolutely. Thank you for having us on. Hi, this is John Batham from Saturday Night Fever and War Games, and you're listening to Genretainment. Well, thanks to Darren and Matt for the interview, and please be sure to check out Timekeeper and their Indiegogo campaign. We will have links to their show and the campaign in the show notes. Coming up on our next episode, a return visit from game, animation, and comic book writer Christy Martz. Now, Christy has written for classic animation series like G.I. Joe, Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, and Gem and the Holograms for comic books like Birds of Prey, and has written for a number of video games and TV shows as well. And she is also the author of the book Writing for Animation, Comics, and Games. 
After that episode, we'll have an interview with Christopher Kentworthy, the author of best-selling Master Shot series of books. And we'll talk to him about writing and filmmaking and learn more about his Master Shots books and his newest book, Shoot Like Tarantino. Now, also before we go, we want to remind you that you can keep track of us by subscribing to us on iTunes or Stitcher or following our Genretainment Facebook page, Marx's Twitter account, which is at Mr. Marks, our website at Genretainment.com, or follow all of the shows at SciFiPulseRadio.com. So that's it for today's Genretainment. We'll be back soon with all new guests from our favorite films, TV shows, novels, and web series. Genretainment is a production of Alien Jungle Bug Productions. Until, Until next, next time. time. Can you say there can be only one? There can be only one. Yes, perfect. Nice. nice. I think I think that might be a, a nice new perk. Matt well, no, will say I, in an English accent anything you want. I, I think so. Yeah. I yeah. Think that's a good one. Mm-hmm. Of All course right. you. Can are. you say, please, sir? Can I have some? Ah, no, 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 no. oh, how dare you? That's kind of racist. <laughs> but actually, you were you making know, fun of the whole thing earlier. No, you're absolutely right. I understand you're ironically asking me to say it, but you do want to sit, hear me say, please, sir, can I have some more? Yeah. Oh, he is English. <laughs> he clearly, he's clearly English, and he was probably he an is, orphan. Listen really to it. He is English. Oh, those poor orphans. He's got that orphan sound to it. <laughs> Eat your food. There are starving orphans in London. Yes. Absolutely. Please, yes. Give, donate freely to Timekeeper Indiegogo for the orphans of London. (laughs) (laughs) Who will indirectly benefit from this funding. Bad monkey.